I welcome Nicholas Walterstorff. Thank you very much. And before anything else, let me express my uh, the gratitude of Claire and myself for the wonderful, warm hospitality of you people here in Belfast. And the honor you do me by leaving your warm fireplaces on, um, as the Livingstones tell me, this unusually cool and dark Belfast evening <laughs> to uh, come out and hear a philosopher talk. Do love and justice conflict? Two concepts long prominent in the moral culture of the West are love and justice. One can understand that there would be a culture in one or the other, a moral culture in one or the, in which one or the other or, or both of those was absent. We didn't, people didn't talk about love, they didn't talk about justice. In our culture, many people, I would suppose most people, think in terms of both love and justice. So why is that? I think it's pretty clear. I think pretty clearly the answer is that you and I are inheritors of two comprehensive moral doctrines, if you want to call them that, coming down to us from antiquity. Moral imperatives is maybe the better word. One of those moral imperatives is do justice. That imperative comes from the uh, the Greek Roman strand of our inheritance. The great Latin jurist Ulpian said uh, justice called, issues a call for justice to treat everybody as they have a right to be treated. But also it comes from the Hebrew scriptures, Amos, Micah, um, love justice, do justice, and so forth. So that imperative comes from both strands of our ancient inheritance. The other imperative, love your neighbor as yourself, even if that neighbor is an enemy, comes to us from the Hebrew, uh, from the Jerusalem strand, let's just say, the Hebrew Christian strand. It does not come to us from the, uh, from the ancient pagan strand. So these two imperatives, do justice and love your neighbor as yourself, coming down to us in Western culture, human culture. These two imperatives do not reveal on their face how they are related to each other. And that's, as I see it, the reason why um, so many, there have been so many discussions as to how they do, in fact, relate to each other. What do these two grand imperatives have to do with each other? Love your neighbor as yourself and do justice. A prominent theme in these discussions, I mean, the relationship between these two enters philosophy, theology, literature, Plato's Merchant of Venice, uh, Mercy and Justice. Uh, they're just all over the place. Now, a prominent theme in the literature on love and justice is the theme of tension or conflict. I would say that that's, in fact, the most prominent theme. Sometimes this theme takes the form of arguing that it's just impossible to follow these two imperatives simultaneously. If you treat the other person out of love, you're not treating them as perforce. That's different from treating them as justice requires. On the other hand, if you're treating them as justice requires, that perforce is not treating them out of love. So that the two imperatives are, are inherently conflictual. At other times, what you'll find when this theme of tension gets expressed 
is not that the imperatives are inherently conflictual, that you can't possibly act out of both simultaneously, but rather the theme is that over and over they do in fact come into conflict with each other. I would say that the three major areas, not the only areas, but the three major areas in which they are said to conflict is this, are these. Sometimes it's said, or pointed out as actually the case, sometimes it's pointed out that, that benevolence is unjust. This morning in my sermon I talked about the attitude of the Afrikaners before the revolution took place, that they were very benevolent, but the benevolence took the form of injustice. Sometimes it's observed that generosity is unjust. We're going to see a case or purported case of that very shortly. And thirdly, what you often find argued is that, is that forgiveness is unjust, that to forgive, to forgive the wrongdoer is, among other things, to forego punishing the wrongdoer. And the argument is then that it's, that it's unjust, that it, in fact, that it undermines justice to not to forego punishing the wrongdoer. The great medieval theologian Anselm had a book that he called Proslogion, and in there, uh, chapter 10 or 11, he raises the question about the relationship between God's love and God's justice, and that's exactly the, the issue that Anselm raises. Let me just quote what he says. Anselm is addressing God. How do you spare the wicked, spare, not punish, how do you spare the wicked if you are all just and supremely just? You see, you see the bite of the question. If God is just, how can it possibly be that God would, out of mercy, forego punishing the wrongdoer? So, the theme of conflict. Sometimes these two imperatives are thought to be inherently conflictual. At other times, they're thought not to be inherently conflictual, but over and over to raise types of conflict. That's the topic I'd like to address this evening. So here it goes. There are different kinds of justice and there are different kinds of love. So a question that comes to mind immediately is when we're talking about this tension, what kind of justice do people have in mind? And what kind of love do they have in mind? As to justice, it's my impression that people who talk about the tension between love and justice have all kinds of justice in mind. A common distinction is between retributive justice, corrective or criminal justice, and <laughs> the other kind, the kind that when it breaks down, criminal justice or retributive or corrective justice becomes relevant. I call that primary justice. Um, some writers, when they talk about the tension, have corrective justice in mind. Some have primary justice in mind. So all kinds. The situation with respect to love is pretty clearly different. The word, English word love covers a variety of different phenomena. One thing that it covers is attachment to something, as when you say, I just love my cat. Uh, that's being attached to your cat, bonded to your cat, right? Another, kind, another thing that the English word love covers is, oh, attraction, being attracted to something for its worth. Somebody says, I just love, you know, I don't know, take your example, I just love Beethoven's late string quartets. That's the love of 
being drawn to something. And those two are quite clearly different. Love is attachment. Love is um, attraction. You might, you might concede that your cat, the cat to which you are attached, is by no means the finest cat in the neighborhood. Uh, you might, in fact, concede that it's among the worst cats in the neighborhood. But it showed up on your doorstep one December morning, and you took it in, and, yeah, it's not its worth that attracts you. You're just bonded to it. Bonding is somewhat mysterious. So two kinds of love, right? Attachment. Attraction, being drawn to something. For those of you who, are, uh, who read Plato, in Plato's um, dialogue symposium, Plato talks about love, and it's this love of being drawn to something, being drawn to something by the worth of the thing. Now there's another, yet a third thing that the word, English word love refers to commonly, and that's benevolence, uh, generosity, seeking Seeking to advance the good, seeking to advance the good of someone, seeking to make somebody's life better than it is uh, in whatever way. That's not being drawn to them. That's not being attached to them. But it's, well, you see what it is, seeking to promote the good in their lives. Now, to the best of my knowledge, every writer who talks about the tension between love and justice has that last form of love in mind. Love as benevolence. It could, in principle, be the case, I suppose, that some writer, when he talks about the tension between love and justice, has one of those other two kinds of love in mind, I suppose. But all the discussions I know have in mind love as benevolence, love as generosity, love as seeking to enhance, enhance what's good and, and get rid of what's bad in the life of the other person. So that's what we're going to talk about. The supposed tension between love as benevolence and justice. Now I think that the supposed, well, the real cases of conflict between love and, uh, between benevolence, love as benevolence and justice, I think these cases of conflict, unjust but paternalism, unjust generosity, does forgiveness undermine justice? I think those are important to talk about. I think they're interesting to talk about. But tonight I want to ask what seems to me the, the, fun, the more fundamental question. Namely, it's this. If love as benevolence so often yields conflict with justice, forcing us to choose between the two, or to analyze the case in such a way that we conclude that it was only apparent conflict, if that's what happens, if love, if love is benevolence and justice, so often issue in real or apparent conflict, may it be the case that we are misinterpreting our Jewish and Christian inheritance. May it be that when the Old Testament and Jesus issued the love imperative, love your neighbor as yourself, even if the neighbor is an enemy. May it be that the Old Testament and Jesus, when they issued that imperative, did not have benevolence in mind, or attraction, or attachment, but some other kind of love. And may it be that between this other kind of love and justice, there is no tension. Unity. 
May it be that instead of just plunging ahead and discussing the complicated cases, may it be that what we need is a rethinking of our understanding of love. And maybe also for some of us, a rethinking of our understanding of justice. May that be the case. That's the possibility that I want to explore. Now, the Greek word that Jesus used when he said, love your neighbor as yourself, was agape. A-G-A-P-E, agape. And the view that what Jesus meant by agape in the second love command was pure, gratuitous generosity or benevolence was never more thoroughly developed than it was by members of a certain movement in Christian ethics in the 20th century. It was, no surprise, given the Greek word called the agapist movement. Okay, so let me call it that. I mean, somewhat alien word, but you can handle it. The agapist movement became enormously popular and influential, especially among Protestant as ethicists, Christian ethicists and theologians, but not only. Um, Pope Benedict's um, recent encyclical, well, about three or two years ago on caritas, love, um, was thinking along the same lines. Okay, so the agapist movement. A little bit of, tiny little bit of intellectual history here, I think will help us set the background. The two great documents of this agapist movement were Kierkegaard's works of love, written in the 19th century. I've said that this is a 20th century movement, but Kierkegaard is actually in the 19th. Kierkegaard's works of love and Anders Negren's Agape and Eros. Negren was a Swedish bishop, Swedish Lutheran bishop, publishing his work in the 1930s in a few installments. So Negren, N-Y-G-R-E-N, Agape, love, and Eros is another is, is a Greek word for another form of love. But this thing, to give you some sense of the influence of movement, the same understanding of New Testament agape as pure, gratuitous generosity, you find this also in, I'll reel off a bunch of names of theologians, you find it also in Karl Barth, Emil Brunner, Reynold Niebuhr, Paul Ramsey, John Howard Yoder, Stanley Hauerwas, and on and on goes the list. I recently read a fine book, free of charge, by my former Yale colleague Miroslav Wolf. And in the book, Miroslav just takes for granted that love, as Christians understand it, is what he calls gratuitous generosity. And you see the point I'm making. Miroslav is not an oddball here. He's in the standard 20th century tradition on this matter. So to give you some sense of how this movement developed, and why they thought that love and justice were in tension with each other. To give you some sense of it, let me take Negrin, the Swedish Lutheran bishop. He may not be the most profound, but he is the most clear and relentless in the sense that <laughs> conclusions that you and I would regard as demanding that you back up and question your premises our conclusions that Negrin said, yeah, this just shows the, the utterly astonishing truth of what I've been uh, saying, right? Um, so that's what I kind of like about Negrin, this, this relentless, you, you take the argument where, where it leads you and you don't back up. 
I think you ought to back up, but, but that's another matter. Okay, so Negrin. Negrin saw three great motifs, themes, as he called them, motifs, as a, in a struggle for dominance in Western thought. One motif is eros, Greek word, eros. Eros is the Greek word for love's attraction. You know that form of love? I just love the late Beethoven's string quartets, that kind of love. Greek word for love as attraction. Negrin thought that that kind of love, eros, was at the bottom of things, self-love. I don't find that very plausible, but, uh, you know, I think that when I love the late Beethoven string quartets, I'm loving the late Beethoven string quartets. I'm not loving Nick Waltersdorf, but... um, you know, I'm not going to argue that on this occasion. Um, so one motif is eros. The next motif is, according to Negrin, nomos, another Greek word, nomos, the word for law. And Negrin thought the Old Testament was all about nomos, was all about law, and he connected law with justice. Okay? So two motifs so far, eros in the Platonic tradition, Nomos, or law, or justice in the Old Testament tradition. Now you can guess at the third, agape. Agape is the New Testament. So three great motifs. Um, and agape then is, for Negrin, the love that Jesus attributes to God and enjoins on us. Um, Negrin unhesitatingly affirmed the implications of this scheme. Here's an implication. You may have smelled it out. In the New Testament, agape, love, supplants, normos, justice. Let me say it again. Here's an implication. Three great motifs. Agape in the New Testament, normos in the Old Testament. According to Negrin, in the New Testament, love Benevolence, supplants, justice. Justice is an Old Testament thing. Why did he say that? Once again, he's admirably clear in his reason for it. Here's why. Negrin says that when you, when you think about God's love for us and the love that Jesus enjoins on us for our fellows, when you think about God's love for us, you should always think of God's love through the lens of forgiveness. Always think of God's love through the lens of God's forgiveness of the sinner. Okay? Now, in the case of God's love of the sinner, the sinner doesn't have a a claim to being forgiven. The sinner cannot claim that he's got a right to be forgiven, that justice requires that he be forgiven. It's pure, gratuitous generosity on God's part. Okay, so that's why agape, New Testament love, is pure generosity, which pays no attention to what justice requires. New Testament, he puts it like this, New Testament love is blind to justice and injustice. New Testament love is pure concern for the well-being of the other person. And Negrin took it one step farther. Not only is New Testament love blind, indifferent to what justice requires, New Testament love, agape, benevolence, 
may in fact perpetrate injustice. And when it does perpetrate injustice, we should say goodbye to justice and stick with love. If true spontaneous generosity requires that you wrong the other person, go ahead and wrong the other person, but do not fail to love. That's how he interpreted the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Most of you remember the parable. Um, Landowner has a vineyard. He needs uh, workers. Um, So he gets day laborers. He goes into the, or he has his his, uh, manager, go into the marketplace and get some day laborers at 8 o'clock. And he says, I'll pay you the going wage. He needs some more laborers, so he has the manager go into the marketplace again around 10 o'clock and get some more laborers. And he says, I'll pay you the going wage. And so it goes until 5 o'clock. He still needs a few more workers to wind up the day's harvest. So he goes into the uh, marketplace. The manager goes into the marketplace and gets a final batch of laborers. Then, the man- then he orders the manager to um, pay the people, pay the workers. Um, the workers who came last, the 5 o'clockers, they get the going daily wage. And, uh, I, I mean, they go past the manager in the, in the reverse order of their hiring, so the, uh, the latecomers get the going daily wage. So the earlycomers, of course, they've worked, you know, since 8 o'clock, and it's been hot and all that. They expect a dollar more than the going daily wage, but they get exactly the same as what the latecomers got, namely the going daily wage. So they cr- grumble. No surprise in that, right? So they grumble. And then, according to Negrin, the response of the landowner is, Hey, look, I can see that I'm treating you unjustly, but am I not allowed to do what I want with my generosity? Example, says Negrin, of sticking with love, sticking with generosity, at the cost of, if necessary, of treating somebody unjustly. Okay. The follower of Jesus is called in all circumstances to remain faithful to agopic love even at the cost of perpetrating injustice. After, let me talk briefly about a second figure, Reynold Niebuhr. Many of you will have heard his name. After Niebuhr, I think it was Niebuhr in this movement, who thought most seriously about the relation between love and justice. Niebuhr understood love in exactly the same way. Agopic love, New Testament love, is pure, spontaneous benevolence. Um, but Niebuhr thought that uh, Nigman's response to the possibility of conflict, that Nigman's response was utterly naive. Niebuhr was convinced that one of the diseases of American liberal Christianity in the early part of the 20th century was that liberal Christians were thinking that if we just love, if Christians just love everybody enough, then that love is going to be reciprocated and the, and the world will be a world of love. Niebuhr thought that that was alarmingly uh, naive. So um, Niebuhr's solution was this. In this world of conflict, love and justice may indeed conflict. When they do conflict, go with justice and say goodbye to love. So what's the place for love? Love belongs to the, the age to come, the eschaton, when there will no, long, no longer be conflict that justice has to deal with. Little exception, in family situations where there isn't any conflict, then sometimes you can 
practice love. Butsus Nibur, families also involve conflict on a regular basis. So there are just little, little inklings of love possible. In those harmonious situations, you can love. Otherwise, love runs the danger of perpetrating injustice, of wronging people. So here in this present age, stick with justice and await love until the age to come. Um, look at Jesus hanging on the cross, said Niebuhr. That's what happens to people who stick with love. So what to do? Um, well, okay, so I presented to you two, two people who thought deeply about this conflict between love and justice. Let me give you my response. Let me take uh, Negron and... Uh, I guess I'll skip Niebuhr unless you ask me questions about it. First, I think this line of thought, Niebuhr's line of thought, stick with love even if it is at the cost of injustice. Stick with love understood as benevolence even if it is at the cost of injustice. I think that that line of thought is exegetically untenable. Justice is not supplanted by love in the New Testament. As I said in my sermon this morning, justice, it seems to me, is all over the New Testament. And Niebuhr, and, and Niebuhr has misinterpreted the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. The landowner does not say to the complaining all-day workers what Niebuhr interprets him as saying, namely, I concede that I've treated you unjustly, but am I not allowed to do what I want with my generosity? Let me quote you exactly what the landowner does say, okay? Here's what the landowner says. Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? I choose to give the, to these last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Friend, these are the early workers, I do you no wrong. The Greek word is adikos. And the Greek word adikos means unjustly. Here's what the landowner says. I am not treating you unjustly. The landowner does not say, I'm treating you unjustly, but don't I have a right to treat you unjustly? The landowner is saying, I'm not treating you unjustly. What he's saying is you've got to rethink your understanding of justice. So it's, um, hey, look, I have no idea how Negrin could interpret the parable the way he does. But lots of other people interpret it the same way, so I have no idea how so many people can misinterpret the, misinterpret the parable. The landowner says, I didn't treat you adikos. I didn't treat you unjustly. I think Negrin's line of thought is also systematically incoherent. We're always, here's my reason, we're always to think of God's love on the model of through the lens of forgiveness. And forgiveness, uh, the forgiven person can't claim a right to be forgiven, cannot claim that uh, justice requires it. True. But look, you can't, you can't spread forgiveness just hither and yon. I'll do a little bit of forgiving of you and a little bit of forgiving of you and you and so forth. You can only forgive, forgive somebody if they've wronged you. Right? And to wrong you is to treat you unjustly. If we wiped the concept of justice out of our minds, 
we would have no way of telling when forgiveness is appropriate. The application, the very, the application of the very idea of forgiveness presupposes that you're able to recognize when you've been wronged. So you can't just toss the idea of being wronged and injustice out of the window. Forgiveness, ironically, yeah, the forgiven person can't claim that they have a right to be forgiven, but you can't know whether forgiveness is appropriate unless you use the concept of justice. Okay, so now let's back up a little bit and think for ourselves. Rather than just assuming that what Jesus meant by agape, when he said love your neighbor as yourself, rather than just assuming that what Jesus meant was pure, spontaneous, benevolence, generosity, let's look at the biblical text and try to figure out, look for some clues as to what Jesus did mean. Okay? So all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, report the episode in which Jesus presented the two love commands. Some querulous uh, Pharisee comes to, Jew, to Jesus asking, what are, the, what are the greatest commands in the law, the Torah? Presumably they expect to be able to trip Jesus up and to say, aha, that's, those are not the greatest, these are the greatest. But in fact, what Jesus says gains assent, and so the, so the trap doesn't work. All three synoptic Gospels report the two commands basically the same. The only variation between them is that Mark introduces it with the Shema, the Jewish Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Matthew says that the second command is like unto the first. Otherwise, love the Lord God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. The first says, to say it again, that we are to love God with our whole being. Nigrun, bless him, saw this as posing a difficulty for his, his interpretation of love as pure, gratuitous generosity. He raised this question. Can you treat God with gratuitous generosity? And he decided, no, that's not right. So he had the guts of his conviction and said, Jesus spoke loosely when he said that we should have agapic love for, the neighbor, for God and for neighbor, what, for God. What Jesus really meant, what he should have said, is that we are to have faith in God. Okay? Now you've got a problem, because Matthew says that the second command is like the first. And Negrin wants to interpret the second command as pure gratuitous generosity, he's been forced to interpret the first one as faith in God. So that makes the second unlike the first, right? When Matthew says like the first. I don't know of any passage in which Negrin addresses that. Hey, look, utterly obvious problem. Second command says, love your neighbor as yourself. I think the structure of that is a just, just so uh, is a just as, so also. Just as you love yourself, so also love your neighbor. You love yourself, right? So also, Jesus says, love your neighbor. I don't see any way around the conviction, that conclusion, that Jesus thought self-love was legitimate. 
correct? Just as you love yourself, so also love your neighbor. But self-love is not benevolence. And in fact, once again, Negrin has the guts of his conviction and says that, that, love of, that Christianity teaches us that love of self is wrong. Wrong. Self-love is wrong. I'm not aware of any passage in which Negrin poses to himself the question, how is that possibly compatible with Jesus saying, love your neighbor as yourself? But those two points, so I find them interesting, are really for my purposes for our discussion tonight, throwaway points. Let me get to the important ones. Important one. The two commands are presented as summations of the essence of the law, Torah. They are that. But in fact, they are quotations from the Old Testament, from the law, from the Torah. They're quotations that catch the essence, okay? The first command is a quotation from Deuteronomy 6. The second is a quotation from Leviticus 19. Now suppose we look at the contexts in which those two commands occur in the Old Testament. Maybe the context will illuminate what they mean. It doesn't follow immediately that Jesus and his interrogators meant the same thing as, as the Old Testament. But that seems likely, right? I mean, the burden of proof is to say that there was a switch in me. So let's look at the context, okay? Context doesn't always help. It's quite often it helps. Uh, let's not do it for the first command. Let's do it for the second command this evening. Leviticus 19, the context for the second love command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Situation is that Moses is delivering the divine law code to Israel. The context actually covers three chapters. Read them for yourself when you get home, 17, 18, 19. I'm going to break into it a few verses before the actual uh, quotation. Let me quote, okay? You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall do no injustice. Did you hear the word? Injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. But in justice shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go up and down as a slanderer against your people. And you shall not stand forth against the life of your neighbor when it's threatened. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason with your neighbor, lest you bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God. So what we have here is a number of detailed injunctions. I didn't count them. How many? Five? If you took the whole three chapters, there'd be 52 or whatever number of detailed injunctions. I suppose it would be possible to take that last one, love your neighbor as yourself, as just one more detailed injunction among a pack of others. But that's not how Jesus understood it, and it's not how his interrogators understood it. They understood it as summarizing him. They understood that last injunction as prefaced with, in short, love your neighbor as yourself. 
And now for the point. Love is not pitted against justice. To the contrary, treating your neighbor justly, examples of treating your neighbor justly, are here cited as examples of loving your neighbor. Right? Twice over. Treat your neighbor justly, and then in short, love your neighbor as yourself. Justice is an example of love. So here's my conclusion. The love that Jesus enjoins on us for our neighbors cannot be understood as sheer gratuitous benevolence that pays no attention to justice and injustice. We have to rethink love so that it incorporates justice. And how to do that? Well, why is it that benevolence sometimes wreaks injustice? What does love as benevolence not take into account? To answer that question, I've got to explain ever so briefly how I understand justice, and then I think we'll have the answer to the question. On my view, justice is grounded in rights. Justice is present among people in society insofar as people enjoy what they have a right to. They're treated as they have a right to be treated. And in turn, here's how I understand rights. To understand what a right is, one has to distinguish these two things. This is, I think, the most subtle part of my talk tonight, most complicated, whatever. So I'll do it my best to get it across. We've got to distinguish well-being of a person, how well that person's life is going, okay, from the worth of the person. Your life is not you, right? Those are two different things. So your worth and how well your life is going, your well-being. A truly admirable person, a truly fine, noble, worthy person, may find that his life is going poorly, right? That's the Job lament, correct? Those are the Jobs of the world. Conversely, a person whose life is going very nicely may be a lousy person. And this gives rise to the ancient complaint, why do the wicked prosper? So both that complaint, why do the wicked prosper, and the Job lament, presuppose this distinction between how well your life is going and your own admirability, worth, dignity, goodness, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. So now I can say what I take a right to be. I think a right rep rights represent an interweaving of those two ideas, well-being, your life, how well that's going, and your own worth. This sort of interweaving I think, you, I think one has a right to a certain life good just in case, to, be, to the good of being treated a certain way, just in case if you were not treated that way, your dignity would not be honored. You wouldn't be treated in a way that's appropriate to your worth. Um, an example that I give, a sort of simple example, a professor's example, 
A student, a student does a bang-up job in my course, my philosophy course. Um, he, he has the, you know, the worth of having done a bang-up job, um, deserves an A in the course. And if I don't give him an A in the course, I am not treating him in a way that's appropriate to that worth. I'm, whatever you want to say, depriving me of depriving him of a right to an A in the American system, demeaning him, disrespecting him, and so forth. So a right is that kind of interweaving. You have a right to the good of being treated a certain way, the life good, just in case if you weren't treated that way, you would be treated with disrespect. So rights are what respect for your worth requires. In my view, an ethical framework that talks only about life goods and not also about the dignity and worth of persons, cannot account for rights. So here's my suggestion. I come to the conclusion for rethinking love. Love, I agree, seeks to advance the love that we're talking about here, seeks to advance the good of the other. But the good of the other now has two dimensions, how well your life is going, and whether your dignity and your worth are respected. And love has to incorporate those two. The second pertains to justice. Let me say it again. A person's good has these two dimensions to it, how well your life is going and whether your worth is respected. And those can get out of phase. Love cares about both of those, both dimensions. Love that seeks to promote your well-being at the cost of demeaning you is not authentic New Testament love. So is there an English word, word that captures this notion of love? Earlier I used the words attachment, love is attachment, love is attraction, love is benevolence. Is there a word here? You know, I think the word care does it. Not caring for somebody, but caring about somebody. When you care about somebody, you, see, you try to see to it that their life goes better, right? But you also see to it that their dignity is honored, that they're not demeaned in the course of, of how you and other people treat them. So I think the love that Jesus ascribed to God and enjoined on us is care. It joins these two dimensions of the good of a person. So at this point... Lots of lines of exploration beg for attention. You may want to ask me about some of those. Uh, we'd want to look at those supposed conflicts between love and justice in the light of love understood as care. I think that every such, every such supposed conflict is malformed care, care that's not paying sufficient attention to justice. But instead of doing that, let me close by reiterating my fundamental point. I think we should rethink love, and maybe also, depending on how we think about it, justice. So that the tradition of seeing justice and love as in tension with each other comes to an end. When love is well-formed care, those two dimensions, when love is well-formed care, there is no conflict. Care, understand me rightly, often goes beyond what justice requires 
but it always does at least what justice requires. Care is, justice is not the whole building of love, but justice is love as care, but justice is the ground floor and the foundation of love as care. That's my suggestion. Now I look forward to your questions, first written and then whatever you call the others, on the spot, oral.